You are listening to Heart Sounds from the Pulse of Cardiology. Hello, I'm Shelley Wood, the managing editor at TCTMD. For the Heart Sounds podcast this month, I'm going to walk you through some highlights from the 2017 American College of Cardiology scientific session that took place earlier this month. The ACC now manages to cram their entire meeting into three action-packed days. I, for one, am still recovering. That's despite the fact that we had our whole TCTMD news team on the ground in Washington this year and got a phenomenal amount of news written on site. I hope you'll check out all of these many excellent stories on our conference page. Of course, if you've tuned in to hear how some of this stuff sounded, you've come to the right place. Let's jump in. Billed as the blockbuster trial of ACC 2017 was Furrier, the large clinical outcome study testing the PCSK9 inhibitor, Evolocumab, in patients with stable atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease who were already taking statins. We knew going into ACC that the trial had met its primary endpoint. The sponsor released that news earlier in the year. The full results, however, showed that Evolocumab reduced the risk of cardiovascular death, MI, stroke, hospitalization for unstable angina, or coronary revascularization by 15% when compared with placebo. And according to Mark Sabatine, who presented the trial here, these event curves look to be continuing to separate over time. For the combination of cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke, the trial's secondary endpoint, treatment with evolocumab reduced the risk by 20%. And not surprisingly, based on earlier studies, evolocumab was also highly effective in lowering LDL cholesterol, a 59% reduction, that is, down from a median of 92 mg per deciliter at baseline to 30 mg per deciliter at 48 weeks. And once down there, LDL levels held steady for the duration of the trial. There were also no adverse events seen with the drug. But here's what got people talking at ACC. First of all, the absolute difference in the primary event rate between the two groups in Furrier was just 1.5%. Added to that, of course, is that PCSK9 inhibitors don't come cheap. The two FDA-approved agents cost more than $14,000 per person per year. So is this reduction in hard outcomes enough to sway the experts? Michael O'Reardon, who covered the trial for TCTMD, spoke with Michael Blaha, who cut right to the chase. Blaha said... If this were a cheaper drug with the same side effect profile, people would be ecstatic. But if anything, reaction was somewhat tempered. Other research at ACC showed that in the first year of these drugs being on the market, price is almost certainly affecting their uptake. Only one in five prescriptions were swiftly approved by payers, and only one in three prescriptions were ever picked up by patients. Valentin Fuster summed up both the excitement and the niggling doubts about Furrier when he spoke to the press immediately after the session. Here's Fuster. It's a great study, but I have three comments. One is rather positive, the other is very positive, and the final comment is caution. The rather positive is that when we look at the absolute improvement, mortality and so forth, was just 2%. So we, cannot, we have to look at things in absolute numbers rather than in relative numbers. So it was a positive trial, but it's a 2% difference. Second... What I feel very positive is the curves begin to diverge. So I assume that this 2%, maybe 4% in two years or two more years and so forth, I feel very positive about it. Caution is cost-effectiveness. We are in a society today we have to be very, very careful. This is very expensive stuff. And we just cannot say, well, now everybody will take 
these uh, inhibitor species K9, in, it will be no problem. Uh, so we have to be very cautious in terms of the enthusiasm. We have to be sure that we identify the right people in which this type of approach should be meaningful. That's my, these are my comments. The other big trial released on the opening day of the ACC meeting was CERTAVI. This was the study of self-expanding bioprosthetic transcatheter aortic valves compared with the gold standard, surgery, in patients with symptomatic severe aortic stenosis and an intermediate surgical risk. Recall, the FDA has already approved the balloon-expandable Sapien XT and Sapien 3 devices for this intermediate risk group, based on the Partner 2A and Sapien 3 studies. In the days leading up to ACC 2017, the college, along with the AHA, issued an update to their valvular heart disease guidelines, giving TAVR in intermediate-risk patients a Class 2A recommendation. This was based on results of the trials using balloon-expandable devices. And then at ACC, we got CERTAVI. This trial randomized more than 1,600 patients at 87 centers in the United States, Europe, and Canada to either TAVR or surgery. The first-generation core valve device was used in 84% of patients in the TAVR arm, with the newer Evolute-R used in the rest. Transfemoral access was used in the vast majority of procedures, and cerebral protection was not allowed. As cardiovascular surgeon Michael Reardon showed at ACC, the two-year rate of all-cause death or disabling stroke was 12.6% in patients who underwent TAVR, and 14% with surgery, a difference that met criteria for non-inferiority. Reporter Todd Neal covered Sertavi for TCTMD. For his story, he spoke to Martin Leon, who led the Sapien XT and Sapien 3 studies. Have a listen to Leon explaining some of the other findings from Sertavi and giving his view on what this should mean for the guidelines. Well, I think, you know, this is an important, confirmatory, large, rigorously conducted multi-center trial in immediate risk patients. There, it's, a, it's at a slightly lower risk level than the Partner 2A study was, but it was well conducted and appropriately validated, and it confirms the observation that uh, there's no question that uh, TAVR um, is non-inferior to even the best surgery in this class of patients, which is now a little bit lower risk than what we studied in the Partner 2A study. The spectrum of, um, of clinical outcomes is a little bit different. Certainly mortality seems to be equivalent. There was a trend, although not significant, but a trend towards fewer strokes in the TAVR population. The heart valve, from the standpoint of hemodynamics, performed better than the surgical valves. There were less acute kidney injury, major bleeding, and post-op atrial fibrillation events. All of that favored TAVR. What favored surgery was three things. Higher vascular complications in TAVR, so vascular complications were less. Um, less um, uh, a perivascular leak, which is something that we've known for a long time, and a lower pacemaker rate. So, I, you know, it's, it, it's a very interesting study. It's an important contribution. I would argue that this study, combined with Part 2A, should elevate intermediate risk patients to a Class 1 recommendation as an alternative to surgery for TABR. I might have to give the Decision CTO trial the prize for sparking the most unexpected online squabbling of ACC 2017. Decision CTO was the first and only randomized trial of chronic total occlusion revascularization versus optimal medical therapy in stable patients. It was designed as a non-inferiority trial, that is, to show whether or not medical therapy was not inferior to an interventional approach. 
And sure enough, to the disappointment of interventionalists, OMT looked just as good as revascularization for the primary endpoint of all-cause death, MI, stroke, and repeat revascularization in the intention-to-treat population. As TCTMD's Yael Maxwell reported, that primary endpoint was met in roughly 20% of patients in both arms. What's more, there were no differences in any of the individual outcomes between the study arms through five years, no differences through one year in quality of life as measured by the Seattle Angina Questionnaire, and no differences among pre-specified subgroups. If my grandmother had written the script for this podcast, she'd tell you now that a lot of interventionalists have their knickers in a knot over this study. Their criticism of the trial was swift, but so too were voices calling for CTO enthusiasts to leave their entrenched preconceptions at the coat check. The trouble is, the relatively small number of operators who have invested a lot of time and money to become experts at these difficult procedures want to believe that their efforts are worthwhile. They point to the one in five crossovers in the medical management arm in this trial and the fact that the non-inferiority margin was not met in the as-treated population. Bottom line, they say, CTO revascularization is about symptom relief, not about death, MI, or stroke. Here's Ajay Curtinay, who is among those calling the decision CTO study flawed, but with a rather measured plea for this question to be reopened in a future trial. At the end of the day, I mean, I guess what I would say is we don't have definitive evidence that the treatment of CTOs is associated with an improvement in MACE, but that's not surprising. Um, this trial showed that there was not really a benefit in terms of quality of life, but I think that needs to be more adequately tested. And frankly, that ought to be, in some respects, the primary endpoint of a CTO-based trial, because that's really what we're trying to do with these patients. We're trying to improve their quality of life. Um, and uh, if it were done in a sort of rigorous way without crossover and to see you know, if, if, uh, if we can benefit patients further, then that would support the current way, which we do CTO-PCI, which is for patients with refractory symptoms to medical therapy. Two other late-breaking clinical trials presented at ACC have the potential to shake things up in the cath lab. These were Define Flare and IFR Sweetheart. Taken together, and they were designed to be combined, the results from 4,500 patients suggest that instantaneous wave-free ratio, or IFR, is just as good a tool as fractional flow reserve, FFR, to guide decisions on whether or not to revascularize intermediate lesions. In both trials, the newer technology, which does not require adenosine, was associated with a non-inferior risk of MACE at one year compared with fractional flow reserve. Physiological assessment is increasingly being offered as the solution to determining what is and what isn't an appropriate procedure in a patient with stable CAD. FFR has been the gold standard here, but as many people pointed out at ACC, FFR's penetration has been somewhat lackluster, potentially because of the side effects from adenosine. These new results offer an alternative option that, according to these two trials, is at least as safe and potentially quicker than FFR. Here's Justin Davies, PI for Define Flare, speaking with Caitlin Cox, who covered these studies for TCTMD. There's a, there's a mass of data here, uh, which we hope will be beneficial to um, you know, physicians. And uh, I think the real message, going if there's going to be a message, is that effectively the big winner here should be the patient because it should make it easier and cheaper and, and nicer for patients to have these assessments made. And I think that's the big win, so more people doing physiology. And I don't think the win is like moving people from doing FFR to IFR. That's not the win. The, the win should be that we treat more people uh, in a better way, you know, like and more have the guidelines of telling us the truth. I think that's the win. 
Switching gears, let's talk about left atrial appendage occlusion. But in case you thought I was sticking with percutaneous procedures, no, I'm not. In fact, Laura McEwen covered a study at ACC for TCTMD looking at surgical LAA occlusion, performed as an add-on procedure during mitral, aortic, or cabbage surgeries. The data come from the STS database, which reflects approximately 90% of all cardiothoracic surgery programs in the United States. Investigators, led by Daniel Friedman, looked at more than 10,000 Medicare patients with atrial fibrillation undergoing a first cardiac surgery in 2011 or 2012. Of these, they reported, 37% also received LAA occlusion as an add-on procedure. That's in keeping with recommendations from 2014 AF guidelines that suggest prophylactic LAA closure may be considered as an additive treatment. This was registry data, not randomized, but according to Friedman, the risk of embolic stroke was reduced by almost 40% in AFib patients who had their LAAs closed as compared to those who didn't. Those who got closure also saw a 15% reduction in all-cause mortality. In an exploratory analysis looking at discharge anticoagulation status, Friedman and colleagues found that the association between LAA occlusion and thromboembolism was actually strongest when patients were discharged without anticoagulants. In patients who got their LAAs closed and were not taking anticoagulation, there was a 71% reduction in the risk of thromboembolism at one year. Now those numbers really got people's attention. So does this mean that people at risk of AFib who are getting surgery might be able to have this procedure done as well and potentially go off their blood thinners? Laura put that question to Jagmeet Singh during an ACC press conference. Here's what Singh had to say. You know, I, I think it's important to, I would look at it this way, I think it's really important to recognize that atrial fibrillation is more than a disease that is limited to the left atrial appendage. And if somebody has a fairly high chance to ask or uh, indicating that the metabolic milieu is not great and would, would potentially be prothrombotic, um, I may at this stage still be inclined towards continuing anticoagulation, but again, I am, I am happy to be convinced by the data as it accumulates. One thing that really jumped out to me at this year's ACC was the number of women sharing sessions or speaking as discussants in the big sessions, and I wasn't the only one who noticed. By day two, I'd had conversations with a range of different people, all saying that they thought female cardiologists were more prominent at this year's meeting. When you see something like this, your instinct, I think, is to question whether this is something new or not. After I got home from ACC, I spent more time than I care to admit googling and hunting down old meeting programs from the big three cardiology meetings for the past five years. I then counted up how many women were chairs or discussants or presenters in either the late-breaking clinical trial or clinical trial update sessions. What I found was pretty interesting. You'll have to read my full ACC takeaways story to find out more. But one thing I learned was that the different faces in the main tent at ACC this year was part of a dedicated effort by ACC program chairs to improve diversity at their meeting. I'll give the last word here to Athena Pappas, who was the program chair for 2015-2016 and is credited with spearheading some of these changes. I asked Pappas why the issue of getting more diversity in cardiology departments and in meeting programs like this one matters, and in particular, why a better gender balance in cardiology is something that everyone should care about, not just women. Women become an echo chamber if they're just talking about it, but um, when male leaders recognize the benefits um, 
it becomes real. For example, there's data that boards of companies that have more than 25% women are more effective boards. They make more money. They're more productive. Um, in Europe, they mandated in some companies in a few that they have to have a certain percentage because the outcomes are better. So outside of the societal benefit, you know, the societal benefits, there's some economic benefits. Changing the landscape benefits everyone, and and I'll bet plenty of men have uh, daughters, mothers, sisters, wives who shouldn't be held back. That's it for the March 2017 edition of Heart Sounds. We're already looking ahead to spring and the busy meeting schedule that is just around the corner. Yael Maxwell is covering the European Atherosclerosis Society meeting in April. Then Laura McEwen will be at Sky in early May. Are you a fellow in training? You may want to keep an eye out for Yael and her video camera at the upcoming Fellows course in Orlando, Florida. Last but not least, if you have a news tip for us or any comments on the news or on this podcast, just ask. You can find contact information for me and all the other TCTMD journalists on the website or track us down on Twitter. Heart Sounds will be back at the end of next month. Thanks for listening. <laughs>